the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. 484-96. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
Today's sermon is pre-recorded. The first love. Let's pray. Lord, I ask tonight that as I speak the word you've given to me, that it will accomplish all that you desire in our hearts. Lord, quicken us and set our hearts aflame for love for you, Jesus. Thank you, mighty God. I pray in your name. Amen. One of my favorite pictures in the scripture is of John reclining at that communion table, laying his head on Jesus. What a what a incredible picture of compassion and love that you could actually go and and sit beside God and you could lean over on him and lay your head on him. I can see Jesus just putting his arm around John and the other disciples want to know what Jesus is saying. So they're whispering to John, ask him, go ahead, ask him. I mean, you can ask God for anything when you're laying against him and he's got his arm around you. There is no doubt Jesus loved his disciples. He poured himself out, and then we come to the cross. He poured himself out on the cross. He come and met with them for 40 days after the resurrection. He asked Peter that question. Do you love me more than these fish? Do you love me more than your money? Do you love me more than your brothers? Do you love me? And of course, Peter could only say, I have great brotherly love for you. The day would come when Peter would have agape love and he would pour it out on a cross upside down, saying, I'm unworthy to be crucified as my master was crucified. Jesus poured out his love. And so now we come to see Jesus and we're shocked by his image. The revelation is a a summation of all of the truth about God. It's the end of all things. The revelation is where Jesus comes to that beloved disciple who leaned against him and he put his arm around him. This beloved disciple now is isolated on the island of Patmos, a a penal colony, a, a place of isolation. He was considered so dangerous by the emperor that all the emperor knew to do was to put him on a barren rock out in the ocean. So he couldn't go anywhere. He couldn't speak anything. But even there, Jesus is moving with power. And he now comes and meets with John and begins to pour out for him the revelation of last things in the church. Now, I would expect that Jesus would suddenly show up on the island, sit down beside John, maybe put his arm around him. 
and say, John, let's talk. That's not how Jesus came. Instead, with glory and majesty, John begins to see a vision that is terrifying. Look with me in Revelation, the first chapter. Look at at the image of Jesus that he presents to John. We begin in Revelation 1, verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. He was dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his feet like the sound of rushing water. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is a very different picture of Jesus from the communion where John is leaning against him and, and the disciples are saying, ask him, ask him. And now he sees Jesus and he falls on his face as though he were dead. Why this fearsome, awful, terrifying approach? Why not be more laid back and more casual? Why not come looking a little more friendly? After all, this is Jesus speaking to his beloved. Jesus is coming now to give a message to his church. That's precisely the point. Jesus is coming now with eyes of fire to examine his church. He's coming with a sword to divide bone from marrow. He's coming to speak into his people a word that will cause them to become overcomers if they will hear the word and adhere to it. Jesus is coming to speak this word because things are not going well in his body. And he comes now to speak to the pastors of those churches. Seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Here's John on his face as though dead. And he, Jesus comes and he places his right hand on John and he says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now John knows exactly who he's dealing with. This is not just someone who is like the Son of Man. This is the Son of Man. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Well, let's wait a minute. What are the seven stars? In the scripture, the word angel is used in a very broad sense. It does not mean always angelic beings. 
It means messenger sent from heaven. And so in this case, it means the pastors of the seven churches. They're the ones who come week by week to bear the message of God, to share the word of God. And Jesus is saying, I hold these pastors in my hand. In other words, a pastor is under the direct authority for blessing and judgment from Jesus Christ. I can't tell you. There is not an angel in heaven that I think would not trade places with a pastor. Angels come eager to watch the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people. Angels are eager to be servants of fire, to come and participate in the things of redemption. The plan of redemption has held them captive for centuries. And in every way possible, I'm sure they must be eagerly asking the Father, can we step across into the realm of the human to meet them and to talk with them and to minister with them? And most of the time, the word is no. You must remain invisible. You must be ministering spirits. But those of us who have been called to preach the word have been taken into the hand of Jesus for either judgment or blessing. If the word is faithful, there is a blessing. If the word is not faithful, there is a curse. And across this land, I'm terrified for my brothers, my sisters, who stand before God's people and preach foolishness, who don't preach the honest word, but instead preach things like the purpose-driven church. Breaks my heart. Now we find also that the seven golden lampstands are actually the seven churches. A lampstand in the midst of a church does not mean that they're going to be prosperous and successful. The lampstand means that God will manifest his presence in that house. Jesus. That the mighty power of God will convict of sin. The lamp is fire. Fire, the Holy Spirit's presence among us. We've become so accustomed to the American church where we think if we're growing, we must be doing something right. And if we're not growing, we must be doing something wrong. We're not here to play church. We're here for the fire of God to come down on that lampstand and burn in our hearts. And the Lord God of heaven is responsible for building his church. We don't need marketing schemes to build the body of Christ. We need the honest, faithful word of the living God. One church reports that that the pastor wanted to determine what kind of music the church would enjoy. And so he handed out a postcard, and he asked everybody in the congregation to write down on the postcard the radio station that they listened to so he could determine what kind of music sound they most enjoyed. And when he discovered that, then he said, okay, there's nothing holy about any kind of music or unholy about any kind of music. It's simply what lyrics you put. And so he took the world's music, He put Christian lyrics to it, and the church exploded in growth. That's not the fire on the lamp. 
that flows with healing in the hearts of God's people. So now we come to these seven churches. There are two scholarly positions regarding these seven churches and the messages written to them. One, that these seven churches represent seven ages in the body of Christ and that today we are in, according to the majority of conservative Christian commentators, we are in the age of the last message, that of Laodicea. The second position is that these seven churches apply in every age and we need to learn the lessons from each of them. But we're going to take the latter position and say, what is the Lord Jesus trying to speak into our hearts? And if the shoe fits, put it on. And so we come now to the church at Ephesus. Chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. What would Jesus write about the church in Washington? These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. And now he begins to describe the wonderful things these people have done. Hard work. Perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. We have looked at people like this. We've said, no, that's not right. They're not walking in accord with the Lord's will. We found them false. But then he he comes back and he says, but you have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. So he comes and he says, look, I've watched as you have worked for me. I've watched as you've answered the telephones. I've watched as you've sacrificed your money. I've watched as you've ministered to people, as you've sat in homes. I've watched as you have done all of these things as you have prayed. I've watched as you have interceded. I've watched as you've done all of this. And the Lord is saying, I'm pleased. It was all good. I wanted you to do those things. I want you to continue doing those things. And then he says the strangest thing. He says, but, but yet there is one thing. His casual way of saying it makes it even more bitter in our hearts. He says, I, yet I hold, this, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen? Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, all of the hard work, all of the perseverance, all of the dividing of false theology from the truth of the scriptures, the perseverance that we have that we have done as we have endured hardships for the name of Jesus, those times when we have moved forward, even though exhausted and saying, I don't know how I can go any further. Jesus is saying, I've seen all of that, and I'm pleased with all of that. But I have this against you. You've forsaken your first love. He says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, I'm going to come. And I'm going to remove the presence of the Holy Spirit from among you if you don't regain your first love. 
Now, part of why this is so difficult for me is that I think many of us have never had a first love. And so we're not even sure what Jesus is talking about. I don't know about you, but I've been raised as a lukewarm Christian. I don't, I don't see anybody in my day on fire for Jesus. And so when I read this scripture, I'm saying, Jesus, I don't even know what it means to have the first love. Would you show me what it means? Would you teach me what it means to have a first love? So I began to pray to sit before the Lord in my prayer room. And I began to pray and say, Lord, will you help me understand this first love? Where's this come from? What's this about? How does it happen? Now, I'm going to share with you tonight what the scriptures tell us about the first love and what Jesus is saying, go back to. You're not going to like it. And you're going to say to me, Pastor, it's too hard. It's impossible. It doesn't fit with my American culture. It doesn't work, Pastor. No, it doesn't. Not unless you get married to Jesus. Jesus never intended to be an imaginary friend. This is for real. This demands my life. And so let's look at what literally the first church did. What were their works that Jesus is saying, go back to? Let's look in the book of Acts. We find there a description of the new church. We find there a description of the actual activity that they were engaged in. We find in Acts, the second chapter, verse 42, they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. I was earnest in wanting to know what this word devoted mean, so I looked it up. In the Greek, it means a steadfast and single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. Now, what did they devote themselves to? To the apostles' teaching. Now, what was the apostles' teaching? The apostles' teaching were the sayings of Jesus that they could remember under the anointing of the Spirit. That's where we get the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. It's where we get the parables of Luke. It's where we get the action of Matthew. It's where we get the passionate discourse on the inner hidden secrets of Jesus through the book of John. All of these things, the apostles were coming and they were speaking these words. They were going back into the Old Testament. They were bringing forward the teachings of the Old Testament. So what is the first thing they devoted themselves to? They devoted themselves to the Bible. What is the Bible? It's the teaching of the apostles. And so if you you want to restore that first love, if you want to find for the first time that first love with Jesus... You have to steadfastly devote yourselves to a course of action where you eat, where you consume the word of the living God. 
I'm consumed with this book. Hallelujah. I'm consumed with the word of the living God. I want that first love ignited in my heart. I want that passionate love with Jesus. And everybody comes with their little shtick. I want Jesus. Now watch. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or to the scripture and to the fellowship to the fellowship. Well, what is the fellowship? The fellowship is the church. So there is a clear-cut, absolute devotion in our heart if we want that first love. First, to the Word of God. Secondly, to the people of the Word of God. They are our brothers and our sisters. They are the place where we dwell. They are our family. They are the place of first recourse. First John is very clear about that. And so the first love rises up as we devote ourselves to the fellowship. Now, to tell you, in the New Testament church, they devoted themselves to the church daily, not once or twice a week. The first love does not come out of a once or twice deal. Some of you tonight are so exhausted from devoting yourselves at your job that you have no energy to devote yourself to Jesus in his church. Now, part of how the National Prayer Chapel devotes itself to the church is by meeting in that radio by calling, by fellowshipping, and we're called to do that in front of the public so that the whole Washington, D.C. area can choose to tune in and listen as God's people talk with one another and model with one another what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, to be held accountable in the body of Christ, and to grow in the body of Christ. All we can do is choose, will we devote ourselves to the Bible, to the apostles' teaching? Will we devote ourselves to the body of Christ? But you say, Pastor, I've got to earn a living. No, Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. And so when you go to that job, you're not going there for money. You're going there as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he now holds you in his hand because you're the pastor at that job. And you're there to speak the word of the living God. Well, pastor, I might get fired. Thank you. You just graduated. (laughs) What's next, Jesus? To the breaking of bread. Again, this is a daily activity. Now, in the Hebrew world, they made their bread as a, as a very firm, almost dry bread. And the one who was leading at the feast would always take his place at the head of the table. And he would bless the food by breaking the bread. Remember when Jesus took that Emmaus walk 
and he sat down at the head of the table. It's when he broke the bread that they recognized him. It's that breaking of the bread. The Syrian tradition is probably the correct one that teaches that this breaking of the bread was the actual serving of communion. Now, later it became clear that this evolved into what was known as the love feast, where every day the body of Christ ate together. Not all at one place. They would gather together in homes. Why would they meet? To study the word. Because they were devoting themselves. What's it say? Devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. So I can see the discussion around the circle. You're all right? Everybody's okay? All of your food needs are met, your housing, everyone has housing. Housing was a big issue. It was. Now, why would housing be a big issue? Because all of these new Christians, 3,000 in a day, 5,000, suddenly 15,000 Christians. These were Jewish people who'd come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. They didn't live in Jerusalem. These were people who lived everywhere else, and they just came and stayed. They didn't go home. So they had to come, and housing had to be arranged for. They didn't have jobs. Many of them had to go try to find jobs in Jerusalem. They had to go into outlaying areas and find work. Nicodemus stepped up, a very wealthy man, and church history tells us that he poured out his entire wealth on establishing the New Testament church. James, Arimathea, a very wealthy man with tin mines in Europe, poured out his treasure for the New Testament church. God ordered these people in the appropriate time and place to step in that the fellowship of the church could take place. Now, why was this happening? Because soon Jesus knew eight years later that he was going to have that fist come down on the New Testament church. And like water, they were going to squirt all over the then known world. The drops of that water would end up in Antioch and their people would be called Christians for the first time. Jesus was not going to allow his body to become an extension of the Jewish faith. He wanted something new. He wanted a new wineskin. So now they have utterly devoted themselves to the Bible, to the church, to communion, and to prayer. Four elements that require absolute devotion, single-minded devotion. The Bible, the church, communion, and prayer. Now, I want to come back and speak just a word more about the communion. We have communion coming this Sunday. It's imperative that before you come to communion on Sunday, you examine your life carefully. 
You examine your emotions. You examine every part of your life and those areas that are not in accord with the Lord God of heaven. Confess those things. Repent of those things. Get clean. Always the fire of God comes when God's people repent of their sin, turn aside from it, and seek his face. That first love comes as a result of that self-examination and that washing by the blood. And so as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord and partake of the bread and partake of the wine, what we're really saying is we're going to come to this table on Sunday. It'll have the elements here. As we come to this table, we are saying, Jesus, we again accept and celebrate your offer of marriage. Hallelujah. In that day, the tradition was that you were engaged. The parents came together. The groom offered the bride a cup of wine. If she took the cup, she accepted the offer of marriage. Now, she was considered from that moment married, but she could not live with her husband. He had to go back home with dad, and they had to pull together their resources and build an extra house or room onto the original family place. You see this commonly amongst the Amish. A house connected to a house, connected to a house, connected to a house. And as grandma and grandpa die on this end, the next new one moves in over here. This is what Jesus was referring to. And he said, in my father's house are many rooms. If I were not so, I would have told you. In other words, Jesus has offered marriage. And we're in that time between saying yes and when he comes back for us to take us to his father's house. The scriptures say the love of most will grow cold because of the increase in wickedness. Has your heart tonight grown cold because of the increase in wickedness in your own heart? Have you been devoting your heart and your mind to the things of the world? Perhaps even good things, Mm -hmm. but things that have turned your heart away from pursuing Jesus Christ and preparing to go to be his bride. What would you think of a bride as her wedding day comes close and she doesn't pay any attention to getting a bridal gown? You'd say, well, what's wrong? Aren't you going to be married? Well, I'm supposed to be married. No. What if she said, well, you know, I've been having second thoughts about marrying him. Well, are you going to stand him up? Or are you going to send out the invitations? You know, when the invitations are sent out, that kind of casts the die. But I've even seen some brides walk away after the invitation's out. You see, when, when we begin to get into that place of, well, you know, I saw this other handsome. And I'm having second thoughts. Love grows cold. And Jesus is saying to this church, you've left your first love. You have devoted yourselves 
to your good works, you have not devoted yourself to me. You are not doing these things to prepare to come and be with me. You're doing them to build your own empire. Your heart has been caught in the wickedness of the world, and you're not interested in me anymore. And if you don't change this, if you don't repent of this, I'm going to come and take my Holy Spirit away from you. And so it causes me tonight to ask you, before you come on Sunday, would you carefully look at what you're devoting yourself to? Are you devoting yourself to the magazines? Are you devoting yourself to the interests of the world? Are you devoting yourself to your job? Are you devoting yourself to everything else? But no time for the word of God. I can tell you as a pastor, one thing will cause me to grow cold quicker than anything else. When I begin to neglect my private time, when I begin to not spend my time alone with Jesus, reading the word, filling my heart with his word, when I begin to not pray, when I cease crying out aloud to the Lord and I begin to be involved in all of the work of ministry, my heart begins to grow cold. What's the condition of your heart tonight? Has your heart grown cold because you have devoted yourself to so many other things that you've had no time for Jesus? Good things, taking care of business, taking care of family, taking care of people doing all of the things that Jesus commends this church for having accomplished. But you've had no time to devote to the scriptures. You've had no time to devote to the body of Christ. You've had no time to devote to that intimate communion with Jesus. And you have become prayerless. Your prayer is rote, ritualized, saying the same thing time after time. Cold heart. No first love. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. There will be no awe of the church until we devote ourselves to these four things. The church will look at us and they'll say, the lampstand of God has been taken away from you. Do you remember the story of Elisha? Elijah had just been taken up. There were 50 young men from the school of the prophets. And they were watching as... Elisha came from the ascension of Elijah and he came to the Jordan River and they wanted to know, is the power of God with him or not? He takes out the robe, he strikes the water, the water parts, he walks across on dry land. They come in awe and cast themselves at his feet and say, the spirit of God the spirit of Elijah is on Elisha. 
Is there any who have awe of you tonight? Are people awed by the power of God that is moving in your heart? Are, are people awed because when they look at you, they see a demonstration of Holy Spirit power? If not, it's because we have not devoted ourselves to these disciplines of Scripture and of church and of communion and of prayer. Awe only comes as we devote ourselves to this signs and wonders and miracles. We want them. Oh, yes, Jesus. Then devote our hearts to the Lord Jesus. I warn you, you weren't going to like this because it requires a course of action. You see, in America, we like to have things cerebral. Yeah. <laughs> Pastor, touch me in my mind and, and cause me to feel a little conviction. Uh, inspire me a little bit. Make me laugh a little. Make me cry a little. Do something so that I'll leave here and I'll feel good. Jesus isn't interested in that. He's interested in a course of action. And the question tonight to the National Prayer Chapel, will we move into that fire of God into that first love for Jesus Christ. And if we will, there is only one way, and that is the old way of the word, the ancient path of the New Testament church, where we devote ourselves to pursuing the word of God. We devote ourselves to the body of Christ. We devote ourselves to communion with Jesus Christ, reaffirming our wedding vow with him, saying, Jesus, we will wait for you. We will not grow cold. Our whole focus is on you, not on ministry, not on work, not on family. Our whole focus is on you, Jesus, not on the wickedness that we want to go play with, not in our lifestyle, not in our culture. The whole focus is not on our job, not on what we think we need. Our focus is on Jesus Christ, and communion is sweet with him. Have you this day gone into the presence of Jesus? Has he spoken to you? Has he communed with you? Has he touched you with his fire? Has he poured his heart out for you? Is this a daily activity that you engage in? Is Jesus more precious to you than silver or gold? Is he more precious than the news? Is he more precious than those things that draw your heart? Is Jesus everything to you? And all the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You see, this sharing only comes out of an absolute devotion to Jesus Christ. The only thing that can break your heart 
The only thing that can move in your spirit to sacrifice for the kingdom of God is a devoted heart to Jesus Christ. One of the signs of revival is when people begin to open their purses, when they begin to open their treasures, and they don't hold anything back, and they begin to pour it into the work of the Lord God of heaven. That's a sign that revival is coming. When people begin to say, how can I serve? How can I step in and do God's work? How can I minister? That's a sign that revival is coming. When people begin to talk with their friends, their co-workers, and they begin to confront them in their sin and call them deeper into Jesus Christ and begin to say to them, come and eat the bread of God, that's a sign revival's coming. That kind of revival only comes out of a people who are willing to utterly take a course of action that devotes themselves to the things of the first love. It's not a feeling, not an emotion. It's a course of action. And when you begin the course of action, there doesn't seem to be much result. I tell Jan, sweetheart, I need to go on a diet. I go on a diet. Day two, I say to her, I got on the scale and nothing happened. This diet isn't working. She says to me, Ray, you didn't put the weight on in a day. You're not going to take it off in a day. Well, give me a diet that works. No, you have to work the diet. You have to work the diet. doesn't come off in a day. You have to work the devotion. Day one, you go into the presence of God, and you spend that hour in his presence. And it seems like heaven is shut up. Seems like God is not there. Don't mind. Continue to press in. Pursue after the Lord God. Take a course of action that devotes you to reading the word of God. Take a course of action that devotes you to being a part of the body of Christ five days a week on the radio. Don't let anything keep you away. I'm going to devote myself to following Jesus. Don't let anything keep you from private communion with Jesus. Don't let anything keep you out of the prayer closet. Devote yourselves to this. And then people will begin to share as they did in the New Testament church because our hearts will be aflame with love. Love is the only thing that can motivate people to give and to serve and to be different than the world. So tonight I have to ask you, if Jesus came, would he say to you, I have this against you. You've left your first love. You've turned aside. You've devoted yourself to everyone else and everything else. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, you know what? That gives me such joy because the flood, when it washed over the earth, did not destroy the Garden of Eden. The tree of life is in the Garden of Eden. And that tree of life was taken up to heaven. That means our home is still intact. 
that place of paradise is prepared for us. It's in the city that is going to come down out of heaven like a bride. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You recognize what this is saying. Everything I've said tonight can be summarized very simply. If you devote yourself to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. If you devote yourself to the tree of life, you will live. Now, it's not as though we're in neutral because we're not. We are bent toward the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We are bent toward death and darkness. There's a natural inclination in our being to turn more and more toward that which is of death and darkness. That's why we're required now to come with single-minded devotion and walk as the New Testament church walked, turning neither to the left nor to the right, but overcoming by the power of the blood of Jesus. So what are you devoted to tonight? Examine your day. Has this day been devoted to Jesus Christ? Has this day been devoted to his body? Has this this day been devoted to the communion, that intimate contact with Jesus? Has this day been devoted to prayer? Or has it been devoted to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You are called to be overcomers. I ask you to prepare your hearts for the communion by repenting to each other, to the Lord, to those in your family that you have wronged, for any word spoken in harshness or bitterness, any word spoken in disrespect, I ask you to repent and devote yourself to the first love. Let's pray. Lord, I desire more than anything else to have your fire burn in my heart. Lord, I desire that fire of love to consume me. And I pray, mighty God, that as I devote myself and as this fellowship devotes itself to that first love, that you will come and meet us, that you will pick us up and carry us. Thank you, mighty God. I pray in your name. Amen. We pray that Jesus has met you as you've listened to today's broadcast of Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel. Visit us online at nationalprayerchapel.com or write to us at Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. God bless you. We love you.